sermon, uh, which is very short and filled with a ton of wrath. And so one would not expect uh, the Ninevites to respond kindly to this sermon, but that is what they do. It's a very surprising response. They listen to what Jonah says, and they respond, la- uh, respond to the warning that he gives. And we talked last week about Nineveh's response or the legitimacy of their repentance. So Jonah called them to turn from their wicked ways, and that is exactly what we find them doing. And I gave some observations last week that both spoke to and against the sincerity of their sorrow over their sin against God and against other people. But I concluded that what we need to focus on is not trying to determine the validity of Nineveh's repentance, but to inquire of our own hearts. And, and that's really what, how this preaches, how the book of Jonah preaches to us. Is It's not so much about them, but how then uh, do we learn? Are we challenged and encouraged by what's going on in this book? Now, there was one piece of support for the legitimacy of Nineveh's repentance that I did not talk about last week, and that's because it comes up today. And so today, we get to see God's response to Nineveh's response. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, We've got one whole verse that we're looking at today. So Jonah 3, verse 10. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So if you got your hopes up that this is going to be any shorter of a sermon just because it's one verse, it's, I'm going to dash your dreams on that one. So. Uh, so God saw how Nineveh turned from their evil way. Okay, Nineveh did wicked things. Jonah comes to them. He preaches to them. They listen. They turn from that. And then it says, God relented. God relented. So Jonah happily promised destruction for them. And then there's this surprising, or we could even say miraculous response that Nineveh responded in the way that they did. But then God sees, it says, God sees the response of the Ninevites and he relents. So his response to them is that he's changing course from what he had said he would do. So this creates a bit of a quandary for us as readers. In chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah's sermon is recorded as this. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Okay? So when you hear that, what we should hear is certainty, okay? Nineveh shall be. They will be overthrown. We talked last week how when Jonah preached his sermon that there was no hint, no promise, no suggestion at all that God might be merciful towards Nineveh. And so as Nineveh is repenting, we read, uh, even in verse 9, their uncertain mindset. And so we read in verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. They had no promise that this was going to happen. They're doing, they're repenting in hope. They're turning from their sin in hope. But then that's what happens. God relents. He acts in the way that they would hope that he would react to them. 
So then we've got to ask some questions. Because right, we don't even need to ask them. The text kind of presents them for us. What does this all mean? Does God change? Because if you're familiar with your Bible, you probably know that there's, bi- there's verses in the Bible that say that God does not change. Does God change? Or does God change his mind? If so, what else does he change his mind about? And then, looking at the Ninevites, can we change God's mind? Can we manipulate God if we act a certain way? And does this merciful act of God towards Nineveh confirm that their repentance was legitimate, that it was true? So, these are some of the questions I want to tackle today. Uh, There is a tendency... I think when we bump into statements in the Bible, so one example would be God does not change, and then we read verses like we're reading this morning. There's a tendency that when we encounter things in the Bible that seem contradictory to conclude that, and this book maybe is just a fabrication of a bunch of men who were throwing things like spitballing against the wall, and then they ended up uh, contradicting each other and and so there's these opposing claims of God and and then we think well the Bible's probably just a bunch of bunk and and maybe some of you aren't in that spot maybe some of you are there are a lot of people in that realm that that see these seeming contradictions in the Bible and then say well I I want nothing to do with that like this the Bible itself invalidates itself so why would I listen to it at all But here's the deal. If God is God, and we are not God, don't you think that there will be times when we encounter things in the Bible that will make our brains hurt? That that we'll find ourselves in this spot where we can't fully wrap our mind around what we are reading. I think the Bible says this, this will be the case at times. Romans 12 Verses 33 and 34, it reads this way. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? There are ways about God that we can't fully know. That doesn't mean we don't know at all. God reveals himself to us in a way where he gives enough that we can understand this is who he is. This is his nature. Uh, there's a man in the Bible by the name of Job. Job was a very rich man, uh, very successful, okay? Um, had received God's favor. So Satan sees this, and Satan goes to God and he says, let me have a shot at this man. Let me see if I can do some things to him that will make him turn his back on you. And so God kind of sets some parameters and says, okay, go at it. But, but you've got to stay within these confines. And I love this picture that we get of the interaction between God and Satan. Like, Satan's on a leash, right? Like, he's only doing what God is saying he can do uh, in this instance. But what happens is, Job goes through a horrific time in his life. Loses everything loses his family loses his riches and it brings him to a very low spot 
where he questions God. And then at the end of the book of Job, there's, there's a number of chapters where God talks. And, and so there's been all of these questions formed by Job and his friends. And, and now God comes and, and he's going to respond to everything that happens. And I've just pulled out a number of verses uh, to give you a sense, to give us a sense of God's response to Job. He says, dress for action like a man. I, God, will question you, Job, and you now make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Do you know the ordinance of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning? And this goes on for chapters uh and in the midst of it like as a reader you're like oh man god just threw down on job like he's serious right and in the middle of these chapters of god speaking you find job and like he gets a sense like i had no idea what i was dealing with and and he responds really briefly to god in the middle of all all this and and he says i lay my hand on my mouth and th- in this picture, like, I'm, I'm just going to shut up. Like, I'm not going to say anything else. I have overstepped my bounds. And then after Job says this, then God continues. And he says, can you draw out Leviathan from the sea? And, and in this, so Leviathan is basically like a, a great sea creature, okay? And, and then he's going to go on and speak of all the terrors of Leviathan, the strength of Leviathan, and how God has control over this great sea creature. And, and we know from our journey through the book of Jonah that God takes terrifying sea creatures and he accomplishes great good through them, that he possesses power and control over the creatures, no matter how big uh, the creatures of the sea. And, and so we get this picture throughout the Bible about God, that his power and his glory, his wisdom are so far beyond us. And, and so there will be realities that are hard for us to comprehend. I, and I think that should be an encouragement to us because I- if we can put God in a box, then wouldn't he cease to exist as God? L- like if we, if we know him in totality, he no longer would seem to be God for us. So we like to box God up, right? We like to put him in that box on the shelf. We like to make God predictable so that we know what's going to happen in our lives. Practically speaking, so following Jesus, day in, day out, to follow Jesus will grate on us at times. It's going to grate on our sinful tendencies. For those of us who are Christians, so even though we've been saved, like, we still live in our sinful flesh. So there's still going to be this tension, this battle that's going on. As a Christian, if you are not regularly inconvenienced by Jesus' teaching, I would assert that you very well may not be following Jesus' teachings, that you might not be trusting Jesus. And I love you enough to say this, to follow Jesus will lead us into discomfort 
it will lead us into difficulty. And if we tend to tap out or to turn to something more palatable, the reality is we may actually be fashioning a God of our own liking, of our own choosing, rather than trusting in God, the one true God, as he has revealed himself to humanity. Now, God, amazingly, will work good for us through these uh, difficulties that we go through, through the suffering that's promised for us. He will work, go work good for us. He will mature us. He will actually even bring joy for us. But Jesus is going to lead us to places that we would not choose on our own. There are truths about God that we don't fully comprehend, that we don't fully understand. And there's circumstances that he's going to lead us into that we don't like. But the call for us is to trust him, to know how he's revealed himself, why, why, why he's faithful, or why we should trust him. And then to trust him in the midst of that, trusting that he will bring good out of it, knowing that he's seeking our good, and that's the very reason why he would lead us into this dark valley. Okay, so first question. Now, does God change? Does God change? No, God does not change. So I have a middle schooler in my house right now. So uh, for any of us who are beyond middle school years, if we reflect back, um, middle schoolers change, okay? There's a lot of change that happens in those middle school years. There's maturing that's going on, at least physical. It's not emotional, but usually there's quite a bit of emotional maturing going on as well. We might wonder at times, but there is maturing that's going on. We also see this in churches, right? Churches change. Churches mature as well. Now, some of us struggle with change. Others of us love it. Right now, Casey and I are talking about uh, redoing our bedroom, okay? And she, like, wants to make little tweaks and knowing that it, whatever changes we make, that it'll take her a number of weeks to adjust to those things. And I'm like, let's just completely overhaul the whole thing. Let, I'm, I'm all in on this, but she just wants to make really small, incremental change. It, some of you might find yourself in a spot in life where you are resenting that there's a lack of change in your life. That you really want change to be occurring. But it's not happening. So too much change, not enough change, or maybe for some of us the wrong type of change, can move us to question God's presence. But here's the thing. God's not like a middle schooler. God doesn't need to mature. He, he never matures in the same way that we see middle schoolers maturing. God never has more to learn. God is not lacking in any way. So as it relates to his essence, to, to who he is as God and his knowledge, God never changes. His understanding cannot grow or diminish. God is holy, loving, and just. This is who he is. He doesn't need to grow more into these realities. He is these things perfectly. 
And so these realities about God's nature do not change. His eternal purposes and plans will always stand and can never be thwarted. So does God change? No. But with that said, there are instances in the Bible where we find God doing what we read in this verse here, where God is relenting, where he is not changing his nature or his character, but might be changing in a course of action. Now, if you look really closely at uh, these instances in the Bible, what you'll find is that these, when God is changing in these ways, that it, it's an extension of grace that's occurring. So where devastation and wrath was deserved, God is giving grace. So Nineveh itself, they deserve to be annihilated. We talked previously in this sermon series about how brutal they were, what they would do to their enemies, the ways in which they sought to strike fear into other nations. They deserved to be annihilated. But that's not how God responded. Israel, God's chosen people, they were a foolish and rebellious people. They would turn to God only to the next day, the next hour, quickly turn away from God. And this would arouse God's anger, but on a multitude of occasions, we find God relenting as it pertains to his people. We live in a world right now teeming with sin. It is everywhere, e even in our lives, okay? There is sin all around us. Right now, we can be sure the fact that we are sitting here, standing here, breathing upright, we can be sure that God is relenting right now. Actively relenting. Which is great as it pertains to our sin, right? Uh, but if it's our enemy or somebody else, or we're being inconvenienced, or uh, uh, there's some form of injustice being expressed towards us, that then we're not as okay with him relenting, right? So we like to be selective about whether we like or dislike his choice of relenting. But God is merciful. This is who he is. This is his nature. And so when he is relenting, he is acting in accordance with his nature. He is not giving to someone or something what is deserved. And the reality is, God is a personal God, okay, who relates to his creation. He interacts with, you, with humanity in a dynamic way. So there's a give and take. There's relationships that are happening. But, but the way in which he interacts with humanity does not change his nature. It doesn't change his character. And one thing I think that's, that's pretty crazy about all of this, so this reality that God doesn't change, but then we see things where maybe he is changing in the Bible. A, a lot of people look at this idea of his relenting towards people, that that's what causes them to doubt God, right? Or to discredit the Bible. When, when in reality, the change that's occurring is this great gift. So, so we'll push aside the gift, we'll ignore this great uh, extension of kindness that God gives to us, and we'll say, nah, nah I, I just can't handle it. When, when in reality, that relenting nature is what every single one of us, every single person who, who has ever walked this earth 
desires that. We desire a God like that, a God who will not hold it all, or he'll hold it against us, but he's going to find another way to pour out his wrath upon the sin that's been committed. So, our first gospel application point. God does not change, but when he changes course, it is for our good. It is for our good. And here's the deal. The closer we get to an unchanging God, the more we will change ourselves. Here's the thing. You and I need to change. We need to change. You are not okay the way you are. I I am not okay the way I am. God loves us where we're at, but he's going to call us to something more. He wants to mature us, to grow us up in the gospel. So, for, for you this morning, wherever you're at in life, what change is or is not happening that you don't like? What change is or is not happening that you, you don't approve of right now? Or how, how is God trying to reveal himself to you? What change needs to occur in your heart? Where is there bitterness or hardness? Where are you unwilling to budge? You and I need to change. And, and one of the ways in which we will change the most that, that God's given to us as a vehicle for change is the church. So how can you, how do you need to lean into the church to expose those hard, bitter parts of your heart so that others can speak into your life, to love you, to care for you, to embody the gospel with you, to help you walk along this path. God does not change, but when he changes course, it is for our good. All right, our second gospel application point. Obedience to God delights him, but there is no obedience to God possible outside of faith in Jesus. So God responds to the Ninevites turning from their sin, right? It says, when God saw how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. God desired their obedience. That's, that's why he sent Jonah there in the first place. God desires our obedience as well. He calls us to obey him. But here's the danger, Okay? The danger is to hear the word obedience and then to start to think, I need to do better, okay? I need to do good. I need to work harder. Anytime you hear yourself say that, I need to do better, I need to work harder, like there should be a neon blinking sign going off in your head saying, that is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. We do not fix ourselves. We do not change ourselves. We're not going to obey our way into God's approval. That's not possible. The Bible says we are saved not by our actions, but by Jesus' actions. So we're not saved by our obedience, but by trusting in Jesus' obedience. So, The logical sequence is then we are saved 
And out of our salvation, when we see this good gift that God accomplishes, obedience flows out of it, okay? But the way that most people look at it is, I need to clean myself up. I need to get better. I need to work harder. I need to stop doing these things. So then God will approve of me. That's not the gospel. That's not the way we want to think. We believe in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Out of that comes obedience. And that is what will delight God. And, and so obedience flows out of faith. And the reason that it delights God then is because it says, I am trusting Jesus. We are looking to him. My pleasure is found in him. I'm fearing God. I'm not fearing man. I'm not fearing what might happen to me. I'm fearing God. And so we're giving reverence to him. We're revering his name. And that is why God is then delighted. Notice what obedience is. Obedience is a display of weakness. Obedience is a display of weakness. Okay? Nineveh's weakness is what attracted God's gaze. Okay? It's their weakness that attracted God's gaze. So there's this struggle for us. We live in a culture where we want to be powerful, where we want to be strong. Okay? But obedience is an active action where we are displaying weakness and vulnerability. We're saying there's someone above us we are not that person. We are not that being. We are submitting to that, and we are going to live in obedience to God. Okay, so this whole conversation about obedience and what we find in the Ninevites then, it raises this question. If our obedience can impact God, can we manipulate God? Did Nineveh manipulate God? And the answer is no. They did not manipulate God. We talked last week about repentance being a matter of our heart, more so than external expressions. God wants our heart, okay? He's not just looking for uh, external obedience. And the thing about God is he's God, okay? So he sees our hearts. He knows what we are actually loving and longing after within, not just what's seen, what what you will see about me on the external, he sees into our hearts. So any attempt for us to pull one over on God is futile. We can't do it. And I would say it's dangerous for us to engage in that kind of activity. And yet, even though this is an, a d dangerous pursuit, it's still not all that uncommon. For you and I as well. Think about prayer. Do you view prayer primarily as a tool to change God's heart or for God to change your heart? What needs more changing, God or us? Obviously, it's, if it's not obvious, it's us. We are the ones who need to be changed. Many of our prayers are about getting something from God, right? And, and that's not altogether bad. But the intent of prayer, of the Christian life, is that our hearts would become aligned with God's. That he would be the one shaping us. That we would be in submission 
to him. So God is not our errand boy, okay? He's not our butler. We cannot manipulate God to get whatever it is that we want. And, and this can get really dangerous. So there are times in life when we actively are sinning. Maybe we're bitter about something, we've got sexual sin, we're treasuring something over God. So we're actively sinning against God. And yet, God will still allow good for us. Or, or maybe we find ourselves in a season where we see we're sinning and we're even trying to stop sinning. So we're engaged in some form of repentance. And, and so maybe we begin to think, well, the goodness that God is extending to me is him rewarding me for this effort of turning from my sin, of seeking to repent from it. So we, we might think maybe God is really pleased with our effort, or maybe we think at times that our sin really isn't that bad. God never overlooks sin in a way that he's saying he's okay with it. The Bible is really clear. God hates sin. So God doesn't bless sin, but he does relent from pouring out wrath against those who deserve his wrath. So we could look at Nineveh and we could conclude their, their repentance was true based on how God responded, right? So if God's responding this way, then their repentance must be legitimate. And the inverse of this could also be thought. When, when circumstances go south, when things go bad for me, God must be displeased or disapproving. He must be mad at me for something that I'm doing him and when we think this way what we are doing is we're making the christian life transactional okay if i do this god will do this and, and we turn it into a game right or the idea of it's like banking right like i'm gonna do these good things if i do these things now god is in my debt he owes me right this is not a christian way to think at all. Think of Jonah. In chapter 2, he was praying. As he's in the fish, okay, he's praying to God. In a, in a sense, he's trying to repent in the midst of his prayer. But it's in a seemingly manipulative way that he is talking to God. And yet, even though he's acting this way toward God, what does God do? Does he kill him? No. God bears his life. So even though Jonah's repentance was not up to snuff as he's in the fish, God is still gracious to him. God is still kind towards him. So God's relenting cannot be viewed as approval. Okay? God's relenting cannot be viewed as approval, nor is relenting the same as forgiveness. So let me, let me give a couple examples here of what I'm talking about. So in Romans chapter 1, so in the New Testament, it records uh, people or humanity being caught up in a grievous sin, okay? And God's response to that sin was to give them over to their sin, okay? So, so we might think, like, I know I'm caught up in this sin, but I'm, I'm just going to kind of keep on doing it. What's happening in Romans 1 is God is saying, fine, I'm going to give you what you want. 
It's one of the most terrifying parts of the Bible. He gives them what they think they want. It's not actually what they want, because it's going to lead them to destruction. But God gives them what they think that they want. Israel is another example. I mentioned this earlier, but they continually turned back from, uh, to God, they, or from God. They'd repent, but then they'd repeatedly show that their hearts were not given over to God because after they'd repent, they'd say, we're sorry, we, we want to follow you, we want to worship you. Then they would turn back and follow false gods very quickly. God was patient. He was slow to anger, but that's not because he approved of their hearts. There was a time in Israel's history that they looked around at other nations around them, and what they saw was all these other nations had kings. And so they thought to themselves, we need a king. We should have royalty like that. So they go to God and they ask God, hey, can we have a king? And so God, he appoints Saul as the first king. But this was not the same thing. Him appointing Saul was not him giving approval to Israel, saying this is a good request. He's giving them what they wanted, but it was going to lead to very dark days for them. God called another man named Abram near the beginning of the Bible to be the father of Israel. And what we find Abram doing very early on is he cruelly, inhumanely acts towards his wife. Like, this would be like the worst Mother's Day ever uh, as it pertains to the way that he was treating his wife. God blessed Abram despite that. God still blessed Abram. He still utilized him in some pretty magnificent ways. But that was not approval of Abram's grievous sin. God's relenting is not the same as approval. God's willing, here's our third uh, gospel application point. God's willingness to relent from giving to sinners what they rightly deserve, which is wrath, displays his patient kindness that is immeasurably vast and good. This is who God is. Now, in some cases, God's relenting may be part of the case that someone is building up against themselves. So God acts graciously towards someone, and their response is to act wickedly towards God. And, and it helps to prove, like, no, God is gracious, and humanity is sinful. Your good circumstances in life are not equivalent to God's approval. We can't make the one-to-one -one correlation there. Conversely, hard circumstances in life don't equal disapproval. So there's a verse in the book of Hebrews. It says, God disciplines those he loves. God will discipline those that he loves. And in John 15, 2, Jesus speaks there. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, his father takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, his father is going to prune that it may bear more fruit. So, so we've got pruning and discipline being talked here about here, right? Th those aren't pleasant experiences, typically. Maybe nowadays, uh, sometimes I hear uh, people talk about, like, oh, when I was, when I was growing up, 
I went to the corner and I got whooped. Now we just kind of say, go sit in the corner and think about it a little bit, right? Like, so maybe for some, uh, there is this reality that discipline is, is not all that bad. It might just be kind of a time to let our mind wander or whatever. But, but for the most part, discipline is not a pleasant experience. Pruning and discipline are painful reality, realities, but, but God is saying, I love my church this much. I love you this much. I'm going to discipline you for your good. I'm going to discipline you for the good of my church, and I'm going to discipline you for the good of this world. God's discipline is corrective. It's intended to change us. That we need to be changed. And so God is, in a sense, he's always relenting. E- even as he's disciplining us, he's not pouring out the full fear of wrath that we deserve. He's disciplining us in a way to correct us. A- and it's all for our good. And we can trust God is working for our good because of what we see in Jesus. God relents towards sinners, towards you and me. He has relented, but he didn't relent towards himself, towards his son. You find Jesus feeling God's wrath, his wrath being fully poured out on him. It was laid on Jesus. He took sin's punishment upon himself. And this is why we boldly call ourselves to believe the gospel. Jesus is not dying just because it it seemed like a pious thing to do. We are a people who are in dire need of being changed. God is good. He took our evil upon himself so that we might change. He is for our good. He is changing us for our good. And his goodness is seen and experienced as we see him for who he is as we believe in him, as he revealed himself, and as we obey him in the ways that he has called us to obey him. So the call for us is to trust in this unchanging God who desires your good. Wherever you're at today, if the goodness of God seems far from you, God is for you. He is working for your good, and he's calling us to fix our eyes on him. Trust in him. Don't try and work yourself out of this hole that you're in. Don't try and climb out of this darkness. Trust in him. Let him lead you where you need to go, and he will accomplish what needs to, what needs to occur in your heart. Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness Thank you for the fact that you are a God who does not change. And in this, we can find a ton of sturdiness. This reality that we don't have to wonder, one day you're good and one day you're flying off the handle. You are good and you are faithful. You are loving. You are holy. You are just. And you are relenting. So God, help us to see you for who you really are. Help us to rest in the glorious reality of your strength 
and of your goodness. And where all of our questions are not answered, God, I pray that you would help us to rest in all of the goodness and the faithfulness that we see in your revelation and how you show yourself to your people. So God, will you draw us nearer to yourself today? Would you help us to see how you are both fatherly and motherly in ways that we need it? As Michael was talking about this morning, God, help us to see you, this this full-orbed view of who you are, that you are the parent that we need. And so God, ultimately, may we hope and trust in you. In your great name I pray, amen.